So we finally come to the point of discussing in the parable the elder brother. But we have to go back, I think, to the very beginning when we started the series four weeks ago to again address what it is that Jesus is trying to explain to those around him. To remember that at the beginning there is the group of Pharisees and the scribes who is watching what's going on, who sees Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, and who is muttering at that, who is aghast at that. You see, what Jesus was doing was redefining for them what community actually was. Jesus is associating with people who they would never have associated with. And I think it's important that we understand and we look at really who are these Pharisees? What was their role in Judaism? Well, they were, I guess in a word you could say, official law keepers, official law police, whatever kind of term you would want to to use. That was what they had appointed themselves to be. You know, it's interesting as the reading of the epistle was going on of Galatians as Paul's discussing the use of the law and the importance of the law and how the promise was the real thing given to Abraham but the law was there to keep us in check until the promise had been fulfilled. This group of people couldn't see anything in the promise. They could only see the law as the only thing that would keep Israel. In fact, the Pharisees believed this and this is why they were so intent always on the law. They believed if they could keep the law perfectly for three consecutive Sabbaths, that they could usher in the Messianic era. They would actually be the ones to allow God at that point to bring forth the Messiah. But the law had to be kept. You know, it's interesting as we look at this. It isn't just this moment that they muttered against Jesus. They muttered against Jesus all the time because Jesus was always, it seemed, healing on the Sabbath. The man born blind, the man lowered through the roof, other people always being healed, and they couldn't stand it because they were trying to keep that law perfectly. They wanted the messianic era to come. They were the ones who ensured that this is the way things had to be done. And for them to even consider that the people that Jesus associated with could be part of their community, that was impossible for them to believe. They were the ones who ensured that their nation, their people, their heritage would go forward. Wasn't that even the words of Caiaphas, the high priest, on the week of Palm Sunday, when he watched the crowds praising Jesus, when they watched them flocking to him? He said, what is this doing? We're getting nowhere trying to get rid of this man. It's better that one man should die for what? For the sake of the nation, for our place, for our people. These were the things that were important to them, and these were the things that they worked so hard to assure. And so as Jesus told this parable of the prodigal son, and as it unfolded, they could, of course, as any of us could see, that first wayward child the one who was self-indulgent, who wanted his own way, who went to his father and said, give me my share of the inheritance. They could easily point their fingers and say, what a terrible son that is. Look at the way his life went. No wonder he went to ruin, of course. They could be a little perturbed as Jesus told the story of how the father welcomed him back. 
They could write it off, I'm sure, on the fact of saying to each other, well, you know, this person that Jesus is portraying is just kind of nuts. A normal person wouldn't do this. A normal person wouldn't let the son back into the family. He'd be out forever. But when Jesus got to describing the elder brother, the one who had always done whatever the father had asked, who had kept the law, who was in worship probably at the synagogue every week, who had done all the things that the father had asked, when Jesus began to describe him as someone too who was lost, they would have been aghast. That's not possible. You see, we know that God loves us because we're doing all these things for God. We're keeping the nation. We're keeping the people. We're keeping everything together. God loves us. We are the chosen people of God. And the law is how we are sure that we are doing what is right and good and true. And yet we see in this parable very similar things between the younger brother and the elder brother. We can see that that younger brother wanted things. Give to me. Give me my share of the inheritance. But it's interesting if we look at the words in our text today, we hear a word that has to do with give also. If you look at where the older brother is discussing with the father about the fact that he's killed the fattest calf, he says, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. You see, they both wanted the things of the Father. They just approached how they would get it in different ways. One believed that it was kind of a two-way street. If I do this for you, then I should get this. And to see the Father kill what was known as the fatted calf, that incredibly rare cut of meat that was only used for the greatest celebrations that would ever take place in a family and in a community, for this brother that went away, who asked for everything, who was wayward, who as the words that he says that this son of yours that squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill this fatted calf for him. You see, your things, Father, aren't being used properly. You're not doing what should be done with the things that I really want. I have an agenda and you're not fitting it. You see, that's true of both brothers being lost. They both want an outcome. One wants the outcome that he desires by taking and going away to another life and another lifestyle. And he hits rock bottom. And the other one wants an outcome that he thinks he can manipulate because he's done all the things that were right and good and true in his eyes. Maybe it's a little funny for us to think that you could be lost by doing the right things. But what happens is that someone doing that so has deluded themselves into thinking that they are doing it in order to control the relationship rather than to receive from the relationship. Elizabeth Elliot, who was the wife of missionary Jim Elliot, if you've ever seen the movie End of the Spear, who was killed in Ecuador by natives there, as he was trying to translate the Bible. Talked about a missionary that she knew in Ecuador by the name of Margaret. Margaret had given her whole life to missionary work. She had worked to receive money and to talk at different churches to be supported. 
And she was in Ecuador to translate the Bible into a language of people that had never been translated. There was no written language for them. She had finally found a man by the name of Pablo down there who spoke both Spanish and the language that was unknown, that wasn't written. This was the key to her work. This was the key to her success, to be able to translate the Word of God into a language that had never been translated before, had never been written down. She knew that this was what God wanted for her and that Pablo was that key and that answer. Well, it happened one day as she was praying and just rejoicing in the mission that she had been given. She went to visit Pablo and it had turned out that he had cut his leg and it was infected severely. As she looked at it, part of her other duties as a missionary was to act as a nurse. She had with her a vial of penicillin and he asked her, would you please give me that shot for this infection? And so she did. Well, no sooner had she emptied the vial than he began to go into anaphylactic shock. She's watching him and she can do nothing. The family's gathering, watching their, hus their husband and their father die in front of them. And she's praying desperately, God, you gave me Pablo, the person who could translate into this. This is your work, God. This is what I'm here to do. How can you let this happen? Elizabeth Elliot ends the story to say there was no fairy tale ending in this. Pablo died. And Margaret was devastated. You see, Margaret had, in her mind, had a deal with God that this was how it was supposed to work. That as long as she was working in the Word of God, as she was translating the Bible, this is the deal that God had. God needed to hold up His end of the bargain. And it didn't happen. And she was devastated. And at the end of the story, she writes these final words, God, if he were merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. But if, on the other hand, he was God, then he had freed me. What did she mean by that? You see, like this elder brother, like the Pharisees, the worship of God wasn't something of adoration, of honor for who God was. It was something that they believed they were doing so that God would react to them and give them what they wanted, their people, their place, their heritage. And often in life, we become elder brothers sometimes in these things. And when something happens, when life doesn't go the way we expect it, because after all, we're going to church every Sunday, we're saying our prayers, we're doing all the right things. How can somebody in my life get cancer? How can my marriage fall apart? How can these things happen? God, you're not holding up your end of the bargain. We become devastated. And you see people leave the church because of it. You see, the problem with the two brothers was the same. Neither of them loved the Father for who the Father was. They loved the Father for the things that the Father had to give them. And part of what happens if we use the word elder brother-ishness is that the reaction of someone like that, like the Pharisees who are watching Jesus, is immediately kind of this undercurrent of anger always. They're never sure if God really loves them. And if things happen, then they wonder, did they not do enough? Did they not keep that law perfectly? Have I missed somewhere that God isn't working in the bargain that I've struck with Him? It's what we call legalism. 
It's somebody who comes in and says, this is the most important thing. This is how you have to worship God. There is no other way. This is how God is pleased. Rather than to worship God with adoration and wonder for the gift that He has given us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So often in life, we can see what is right and good and true, and yet we can try to avoid it. There was a cartoon of Calvin and Hobbes. I don't know if you remember Calvin and Hobbes. But Calvin, who is the little boy talking to his stuffed animal, Hobbes, says one day, you know, I feel really bad about being mean to Susie. I was pretty rotten. I called her all sorts of names, and I think I really hurt her feelings. I'm not sure what I should do. And Calvin looks at him and responds, well, you could always apologize to her. And Calvin says, well, I was hoping for a less obvious solution to the problem. You know, there it is, the right thing to do. We know what it should be. And yet, so often we think that forgiveness is something that we control and not realizing that it flows from the grace and love of Jesus Christ who gave up everything for us that we can control our lives in such a way that as we go forward, God will surely do and take care of us and everything in life will be great because we're holding up our end of the bargain. The younger son became angry. In fact, that's what Luke records. The older brother became angry and refused to go in refused to go into the greatest feast of the father's life, who was rejoicing because the son he had lost had been found, who was dead and is alive again. And the older brother, I guess you could basically say, was outside pouting. He wasn't going to go in. He wasn't going to celebrate this. It's not working out the way that he wanted. And in fact, in his words, you can hear his spirit of legalism and the way that he thought his relationship would go. He says to him, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders. Slaving for you. Isn't it interesting in this story what a juxtaposition we have? A younger son who went out and squandered everything and actually became a slave to a pig farmer is restored to being a son and son who was always there ends up looking at his relationship as if he was a slave. You know, Jesus came into this world to do two things. To one, to seek and to save that which was lost. Those who had gone astray, those that we can easily see, have gone on a pathway of destruction and emptiness. To bring them back into the fold. That's why they congregated around Jesus so much. They heard something new in His words. They heard the love of a Father. They weren't looked down on. They weren't isolated. They weren't cut off. They had someone who talked to them about what love was, who God was that he cared about him, that he brought forgiveness, and that could be found, and they could be restored. But Jesus also came to do something else, to take those who were self-satisfied in their security, in their keeping of law, to take those who were interested in self-salvation rather than the salvation of God, and to put them out. That's the beauty of what the Word does for us. It comforts those who are broken, and crippled and cut off in their emotions in their life because of the choices that they've made. And it takes those who are secure in their lives and what they have done 
and says you have nothing to bring to your salvation. It's all about the cross. The cross is that great leveling ground that puts us all in the same place. It makes me think of the words that we say when we come to the communion table. The first question that we ask, am I a sinner? No matter who we are, the answer is yes. It's universal. I am a sinner. I have sinned, as we say, by the things that I have done as a wayward child, and I have sinned by the things I have left undone because I've thought that by doing them I could control life either way. The elder brother was just as lost. The Pharisees were shocked at what they heard. Their lives, their position, everything in their theology had been turned upside down by Jesus telling them everyone was lost. And the only way they could be found was in the cross. You see, no matter how good or moral we think we are, no matter how orthodox we try to be, none of the things that we bring in our hands can be held on to when we stand at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. At that moment, we can only receive what flows down from that cross, the grace and mercy and forgiveness that Christ won for us, no matter who we are, to restore us as children, to bring us into the kingdom, that the Father might rejoice over us being there. May we never try to manipulate God by the things that we do. May we instead stand at that cross and in adoration and in wonder give thanks for the gift that has been given to us. You see, that was part of the problem with Margaret. She had made God a graven image that day, something that she looked at who would work with her the way she wanted, not a God who needed to be or adored and worshipped, who was God alone. And for us to worship God as who He is, the giver of all good things, the one who redeems us, the one who comes to us and finds us because we are lost. That is our reason to give thanks. That is our reason to celebrate. That is our reason to come into the feast with those who have been wayward and to rejoice as one people and give thanks to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. May we ever raise his name on high. Amen.